Welcome to Grounded and Growing in Christ. I'm Dan Rhoda, a pastor of Worland Park Christian Reformed Church, and today we are going to open the Bible together to hear from God's Word. To hear all of the messages in this series, please visit groundedandgrowingradio.com. There you can learn more about this audio ministry. And we'd love if you'd consider providing financial support by making a gift of any amount. If you're not part of the local church, Orland Park Christian Reformed Church welcomes you to worship with us this Sunday as we gather to worship and hear the Word of God proclaimed. You can learn more about our church at groundedandgrowingradio.com. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 1? And what a glorious passage we have in front of us today. What an amazing one. This is one of those times where it seems to me you approach a passage like this much like Moses approached the burning bush. It feels like one of those passages where when you read it, you're on holy ground. All of God's word is inspired by God. God breathed. It's without error. All of it is beneficial to us. But not every part of scripture gives us this direct or intense a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what is so striking about Revelation chapter 1, 9 through 20. So let's give our attention to this section of scripture. And let's remember as we hear this, this is God's word. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write down what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. When you conceive of the Lord Jesus, the one who is your savior and your Lord, when you talk about him or explain him to other people, how is it that you think about him? How is it that you think on him? When you talk about Jesus, do you think about the baby that was born in a stable, who was wrapped in swaddling clothes, who was laid in a feeding trough? When you think about Jesus or when you talk about him, do you, do you picture or do you think about the, the boy amazing the people in the temple with his knowledge of the Lord God? 
When you speak about Jesus, are you conceiving him as the teacher and rabbi and healer, the one who gave the blind their sight, gave the lame the ability to walk, the one who cleansed lepers and restored hearing to the deaf, the one who raised the dead and preached good news to the poor? Perhaps the way that you conceive of your Savior most often is of the one on the cross, bearing your sin and bleeding and dying for the complete forgiveness of all of your sin. Or maybe your most frequent conception of the Lord Jesus is as the risen Christ, amazing his disciples as he appears in their midst and inviting the doubting disciple to touch his hand and his side and observe from his wounds that he is alive. Now, every single one of these images is biblical, and yet none of them captures the way that your Savior is right now. At this moment... Because your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is all-surpassingly glorious. He is the one who has died, been raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father, and is utterly and all-surpassingly glorious. This is how Jesus Christ is now. And this picture of the glorious risen Savior, one who is, is to be feared, actually, in this picture here in Revelation chapter 1, this is a picture that should not make you afraid. In fact, this is a picture that should give you comfort. It should give you hope. It should give you joy because the glorious risen Savior, Christ Jesus, has power over death and he protects and he keeps his church. And this means that if you are found within a faithful church, you are safely held and kept by this glorious Savior. This text can be rightly divided into three different sections. First, we're given a picture of a challenging location, and then we're given a picture of a glorious Savior. And last, we're given a picture of the apostle's task. And these are the three things that we're going to be talking about in the course of this message. And so the first thing is a challenging location. John, who has introduced himself midway through our first text that we took a look at one week ago, John continues his introduction in verse 9 of this passage. He says, I, John your brother and partner in the tribulation. He goes on from there. John is writing to the churches as a brother. He, like the saints in the churches who will be receiving his message, was a Christian and so a part of the family of God. I, John, am your brother. And this, again, gets at the most fundamental reality that is yours if you're in Christ Jesus, that you're a part of a new family, the family of God. And in this family exists those who trust in Jesus Christ, whom you are sitting with today, but also those who have trusted in Christ Jesus throughout time, meaning that you are brothers or or you are the sister of the Apostle John, just like the saints who were receiving this initial message. John says to these brothers and sisters in these various churches that he is a partner with them in the tribulation. Last week when we began, I talked about how the churches that were receiving this message were churches that were facing persecution. And the evidence of that is contained in the text. John says that he's partner in tribulation along with them. John notes that, that he is a partner experiencing persecution along with them. This was not a period of comfort or rest. It was a period of tribulation. We can tell that by the location from which John is writing. He's writing from the island of Patmos. And that might seem like one of those details that we can quickly pass by. Okay, so he's writing from a certain place. He's writing from Patmos. He's writing from an island. But this was a very specific island. This was an island where prisoners were taken. 
This is an island where those who had been convicted of a crime would be caught. This was a prison island. He's on the island of Patmos, an exile for convicts because it's a secure prison. You're not going to be escaping from a place that's completely surrounded by water. There's no real escape. So the apostle is indicating through his own location that he is an imprisoned man, enduring tribulation and persecution that was common for Christians at the time. He had been imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, and he says that much. He was on on Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And the fact that John is simply imprisoned actually might be a surprise for us. One of the things that church history tells us is that by the writing of this letter, if Revelation was written in about AD 90, which is the time that a lot of people assume for the writing of this book, if John is writing around that time, that means that the other apostles, all of the other apostles who had done ministry with Jesus, who had walked with him for the three years of Christ's earthly ministry, who had lived with him and among him, all of them had been put to death on account of the gospel of the Lord. Jesus Christ. There are, according to church history and church tradition, stories about how each one of them met their end, but historically we know that every single one of the apostles, other than the apostle John, died a martyr for the faith. Perhaps the most famous is the apostle Peter, who died by crucifixion, and what church tradition says is that he was crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy enough to die in the same manner of his Savior. And so mere imprisonment is the easiest end that any apostle received. And that's what John is experiencing right now. Imprisonment. And it indicates the necessity of patient endurance for those who are in Christ Jesus. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus, was on the island called Patmos. His his location is a reminder to the churches that there's no such thing as a promise of an easy life for those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, this apostle, famous for writing the epistle of love, 1 John, an epistle that just is brimming with a call to love one another, this man who reminded Christians famously, you know, what church tradition says is at the end of his life, the apostle John lost the ability to walk, and so he would be carried into church services. And it said that as he would look at the brothers and the sisters who were a part of church services, he would look on each of them beaming and just remind them, love one another, love one another, love one another. And this apostle of love was nonetheless considered such a serious threat to the empire of Rome that he is imprisoned on Patmos, arrested and placed on an island for conflict. For convicts. Patient endurance here is right. Today's message on Grounded and Growing in Christ will continue in just a moment. To learn more about Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, to listen to other messages from our audio ministry, or to make a financial gift of any amount, please visit groundedandgrowingradio.com. That's groundedandgrowingradio.com. This audio ministry is made possible by gifts from listeners like yourself. And we greatly appreciate all those of you who continue to make it possible to share this work with listeners across Chicagoland. Now let's return to today's message. The apostles had seen Christ Jesus ascend into heaven and he had told them that he was coming soon. Now for those that were hearing that message, I mean, I'm making an assumption here, but I would assume that they thought, well, perhaps in our lifetime, right? That seems soon. But as 
one apostle went to his death and then another and another. And as the years went by without Christ Jesus returning, the need for patient endurance became very clear. So God wasn't saying soon like humans understand soon. This is a soonness that requires some patience and some endurance. I wonder how many of us are willing to patiently endure. This is not a culture that values patience or values endurance. I fall victim to this. I testify to that this morning. I recently purchased a a gift for my wife. I know, baller. Um, But uh, I ordered through Crate and Barrel, which uh, does not ship things as fast as Amazon. I'm guessing that you, like me, have probably grown accustomed to Amazon's prime two-day shipping, and sometimes it's one-day shipping now. But, and so I, I, I selected you know, standard shipping, assuming that Crate and Barrel would have it to me in two, maybe three days. Standard shipping for Crate and Barrel is eight to ten business days. It's two weeks. And when I read that, to my own shame, I was like, oh, that's forever. I said that out loud by myself. This is embarrassing, isn't it? Patience is not one of those virtues that will come to you naturally, living in a culture where everything is yours right now and where we want everything yesterday. And yet, the characteristic of one that follows after Jesus is patience and it's endurance. My lack of patience in waiting for a coffee maker demonstrates my weakness in patience for the sake of Jesus Christ. And the endurance we have is sorely lacking too. Christians at the time of the writing of the book of Revelation were sometimes facing death for the sake of Christ. I'm sometimes slow to speak because I fear social discomfort. What an embarrassment for me. What an embarrassment for us. It was in the midst of patient endurance for John, a man who was willing to be patient and to endure suffering for the sake of the gospel. It was in the midst of all of this that the Lord Jesus appears to him. Because what John records for us is that he hears behind him a voice that's resounding like a trumpet. You know, the first Sunday of each month at this 8.30 service, we have an orchestra Sunday, and oftentimes we hear the trumpet played as we sing and worship together. Do you ever hear the trumpet during those services and find your spirit lifted? Because I do. There's a reason that the trumpet is the instrument that has often been used to call armies to battle. It elevates the spirit and it awakens the heart to action when its loud, clear call is sounded. And this sound of a trumpet calls to John saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the churches. John is about to receive a revelation. He's about to receive a pulling back of the veil to reveal that there is a power greater than that of the empire which has imprisoned him upon the island of Patmos. That the great empire of Rome is transcended by one far, far greater, by a glorious savior. And that's the second point that we have today, a glorious savior. John turns and he takes a look to see where the voice is coming from. And the first thing that he sees is seven golden lampstands. Now what in the world? We'll find out more about those seven golden lampstands later, but in the midst of all of those golden lampstands stands one like the Son of Man, and immediately we know who this is. Who is the one who's like the Son of Man? Well, the book of Daniel tells us, in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, we're told this, I saw in the night visions, this is Daniel writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. 
And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And then the Gospels confirm it. The most common title that the Lord Jesus applies to himself is the Son of Man. This is Jesus. The one that John turns to see is the one that he had walked with for three years during Christ's earthly ministry. This is the one that he had eaten with. This is the one he had been instructed by. This is the one that he had seen die and witnessed him returning to life again. John's Savior and your Savior is now ascended into heaven and utterly glorious. And the description here in Revelation chapter 1 shows that beyond any doubt, Christ Jesus is utterly glorious. There's an extended description of our Savior and Lord in this passage of Scripture. The first descriptor is that he's wearing a long robe, and he's wearing a golden sash. This clothing is the clothing of the high priest for the people of Israel, showing us showing us that Christ Jesus and him alone is the ultimate high priest, the one able to make atonement for all of your sins, the one who is able to make you right before the Father, the one who is able to purify you and cleanse you and set you free from all of your sin and unrighteousness. This is the glorious one who John saw on the island of Patmos. The hairs of his head are white, indicating age and wisdom and respect and dignity. Now, one of the things that I've heard, and maybe you can confirm, is that some people experience hair becoming white, and they try to hide that white hair by coloring it. Does this ever happen? I've heard it happens. Now, there might be a reason for that. It might be that in our culture, we, we value youth more than we value age or experience. And here, in this picture of the Lord Jesus, this glorious picture, the, the age and the wisdom is a part of the glory of Jesus, And so let me say something to all of us. It's time that we respect those that bear on their own heads evidence of age and wisdom. And for those of you that are experiencing evidences of your own age or wisdom, don't be ashamed. That's easy for you to say. You're in your 30s, you might say. And maybe it is. I mean, so many people talk about how they're afraid to see the white start showing up, and that might be the case for me too, But just understand that this is a part of Christ's glory, indicating indicating his authority and his wisdom. Christ's white hair adds to his brilliance, and his eyes are like the flame of fire. Now, can you imagine? The eyes of our glorified Savior are so brilliant that they produce their own light by which he might see. And even his feet are glorious, like burnished bronze that's refined in his fire. And his voice is like the roar of many waters. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls? I've been there on a couple of occasions. And and as you approach the falls, you hear from a great distance the roar of those falls. And as you get nearer and nearer, the roar becomes greater and greater. And the sound of the cascading water adds to the brilliance of this particular geographical feature. It's part of the the majesty of it. 
And you know, one, you, you think, all right, we're just going to go see water tumble down a, a big cliff for a period of time. That might not sound like the most interesting thing, but it absolutely is because it has an incredible grandeur to it. And the sound that envelops you and surrounds you as you witness this incredible thing is, is part of the brilliance of it. Now, when Christ speaks, the same glory is a part of his voice. His voice is like roaring, mighty waters. In his right hand, he holds stars. He holds seven stars. Now, what in the world? Well, here we're going to have to jump to the very end. And in verse 20, it tells us what this mystery is. It says, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so there's... There's a lot of debate about what the, uh, what the angels of the churches are. And one of the things that we'll find as we continue working our way through the book of Revelation is that, that each letter is written to the angel of this particular church. My goodness, nobody knows. I sent a, an email to one of the greatest biblical scholars that I'm acquainted with, and I was like, help me out here. What are these angels? I can't figure it out. And he wrote back, no one knows. <laughs> That's a discouraging thing to receive. Now, in, um, in, in African-American theology, the angel of the church is typically understood to be the pastor of the church, and, and this makes some sense because, uh, because angel, the word for angel, angelos, it just means a messenger, and so the connection is that, well, this is a messenger in the church, this might, receive, this might refer to the pastor, that could be true. It could be that there's just a deeper point made that, that, that present in each church is the power of God that comes from the message of God. But in any case, these, these stars that are held in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ are images or, or pictures of the churches being held by the Lord Jesus Christ. That as Jesus holds in his hand these seven stars, he's holding the churches. He's holding the churches. And then... We're told that from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword in verse 16. The weapon needed to defeat the enemies of the Lord, you see, is the word of the Lord. The Bible is described as a sword in other places in the New Testament. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, we're told. And here, from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ comes this two-edged sword. It's a reminder of how potent even the words of the Lord Jesus are. Do we recognize its potency? You wouldn't trifle with a sharp two-edged sword. Don't trifle with the word of God. And the brilliance of the Lord Jesus is ended, is punctuated, is highlighted by his face, which shines like the sun at midday. When the sun is shining bright, you can't even look at it. Even a temporary glance can do so much damage to your retinas because of its power. And the face of the Lord Jesus is like the sun at full strength. And this glorious picture of the Lord Jesus creates a specific response from the Apostle John in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And this makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense that this would be the response. Throughout the Old Testament, a few of the people of God were able to get a glimpse of some part of the glory of God. 
But it's always veiled in one manner or another. Jacob saw only a ladder. And yet in seeing the ladder, he set up an altar and said, surely the Lord is here. Moses just saw a burning bush. But the burning bush was so glorious that he had to remove his sandals because he was standing on holy ground. The apostle Paul saw only a light, but this light was so glorious that it struck him blind. And now the apostle John sees the face of Jesus shining like the sun at noon, and he falls on his face at the feet of the Savior, because your perspective determines your posture. How you conceive of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to determine your own posture. If he's just a teacher, or just a child, or just a baby, or just a crucified man, if that's all it is, then perhaps you'll stay standing. But if you recognize the glory of the Lord Jesus, then you recognize, along with the prophet Malachi, who's going to stand at his appearing? Because he is like a refiner's fire. Having a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory should lead you and me to fall at his feet and to worship him. My prayer is that the Lord speaks to you through his word, that we cultivate grateful hearts to him and flourish in a world searching for the hope that we find only in Jesus. To hear more about gratitude, to learn about Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, or to support our work preaching the Bible on AM 1160 through this audio ministry, visit us today at groundedandgrowingradio.com. I'm Pastor Dan Rhoda, and on behalf of the Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, we want to thank you for your support and partnership in proclaiming the Bible here on AM 1160. If you're not part of a local church, Orland Park Christian Reformed Church welcomes you to worship with us this Sunday. You can find all the details online at groundedandgrowingradio.com. Thanks again for joining us, and until next time, may God bless you. Grounded and Growing in Christ can be heard weekdays at 2 p.m. on AM 1160. I'm Derek Bukema, pastor of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church. This month we're focusing on the topic of gratitude throughout the Bible, exploring how God has instructed us to flourish in the world with hearts grateful and thankful to God. If you're not a part of a local church, Orland Park Christian Reformed Church welcomes you to worship with us this Sunday as we gather to worship and hear the Word of God proclaimed. You can learn more about our church at groundedandgrowingradio.com.